European offenses are built to get into a specific spacing. And I'm not saying this is correct or not, but this is how I manifested it and how I began to understand it. In general, all that initial movement is to get into a spacing, and the spacing is going to boil down to two things. Where's the four? You know, where's the four? Is he in front of the ball or is he behind the ball? Is the play going towards the midline or away from the midline? And I think once you boil it down to that, you can really simplify things into what type of coverages you might want to play. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome EuroLeague and NBA assistant coach, Tom Bielaszewski. Coach Bielaszewski is here today to discuss the various considerations and decisions in choosing a pick and roll coverage, playing the short roll, and we talk mending relationships and the analytics of transition offensive actions during the always entertaining start, sub, or sit. It's the holiday season, and nothing says I love you to a coach in your life like giving them access to a deep dive breakdown on drop coverage foot angles in Spain, space creating slot cuts in the G League, or post flare to pin down action in the Czech Republic. Help your coaching loved ones sleep better this season with a gift card to SGTV. Give any amount that can be applied toward a single video or half or full year membership to SG+, a platform coaches are calling the best for high-level coaching anywhere. Visit tv.slappingglass.com or sign up for our newsletter at slappingglass.com to find out more today. Happy Holidays. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Tom Bielaszewski. We got a chance to meet this past summer at the Summer League and kind of share an idea. One of the things that we talked about real briefly was defensive pick and roll considerations and all the different coverages. You've had a, a great history working for some great coaches, Adore Messina, coaches like that. And basically just why you would choose to go with a certain defensive coverage on the pick and roll based off what the opponent is doing. You were in Milan for a couple of years and really seeing that league up close. And so we want to dive right in on things that you and the staff would look at in determining what kind of coverage would make the most sense for you defensively. You know, you start with your off-season preparation and when you build your team. And I think we each year in Milan, we went into a season, especially the first year, thinking we were going to be once sort of team. And then we ended up being a different sort of team shortly thereafter. Remember that year we went in think we were going to be just a full-on hedge team. And that lasted until maybe the first week of October, which is after we had gone undefeated in the preseason. But then once we started playing actual games, we realized some limitations of some things. And I give Ray a lot of credit for that respect because of how established he is. He wasn't just ingrained in one form of playing. It was more, is it working? Is it not working? What matches our personnel? So I think you have to take into account what your guys can do first. Like if you have a slow plotting big, maybe hedging is not the best thing for you and things of that nature. So, I mean, we all know what the different skill sets are for, you know, individuals on the ball, off the ball. But I think one of the big things that come down to for us was how aggressive and how containing do we want to be? And that's really preceded everything we talked about and, you know, aggressive and containing for the game, but also within that 24 second shot clock as well. 
So it wasn't just a uniform thing, like we were going to do one thing and that was going to be it. And a lot of that was going to be due to the skill set of the opposition or how the opposition liked to play. So we played against a team who had a, just throwing out a random example, you know, when we played against a team who had a guard who was a dominant ball handler, but also was primarily looking to score, you know, we could be very aggressive versus that player and hitting him and, you know, throwing things at him to basically make him give up the ball, which he didn't want to do or force bad shots or higher degree of difficulty shots. So maybe you can bait the offense into playing the way you would like them based on your defense. So, yeah, so that was probably the, one of the main considerations. Then you just go into like, what's the team style of play? What type of offense do they run? What are their general principles? You know, just offensive concepts. If you were just to look at their playbook in black and white, if you were to look at that playbook in black and white, how would you play it? But when you look at that playbook or any playbook in black and white, you know, that X and O, it's fine to put everything. This guy should be here. This guy should be there. We should do this. But I think it's very important that you realize that X and O have very unique individual characteristics. You know, it's like, if you were to look at that, it's like checkers. In checkers, everyone can move the same way. However, if you put them in chess pieces, they have different abilities. And so you have to take that into account too. So it can't just be carte blanche that it's going to be this, then that, because that person might not be able to execute it in the way that you want. So I think that's very important to understand what your guys can do. And you need to protect them too, because also if you're going to put out a coverage where four guys on the floor know that one guy cannot execute it that you're asking him to do, you're going to lose the buy-in of those other four. And I will tell you one thing about the European players. They're very cognizant of their own ability. You know, because of the way they're coached over there, the way they've been coached their entire careers over there, they know what their deficiencies are and they don't take things personally. Okay. You're not a very good switch person. Okay. You know, we don't want you here, there, wherever. It's not a personal front to you. You understand who you are at that point. That was pretty interesting to me. Going back to the original question of considerations, one of the big things that I was really marveled at when I went over there was like, I wanted to just learn these intricacies of European basketball offense specifically, because over here, you know, you see all the movement and this and that. And after two years, what it really boiled down to me is like European offenses are built to get into a specific spacing in my mind. And I'm not saying this is correct or not, but this is how I manifested it and how I began to understand it. In general, all that free movement, that initial movement is to get into a spacing and the spacing is going to boil down to two things. Where's the four? You know, where's the four? Is he in front of the ball or is he behind the ball? Is the play going towards the midline or away from the midline? And I think once you boil it down to that, you can really simplify things into what type of coverages you might want to play. A lot of stuff to dive into. I actually just love to stay with what you just said. Where's the four? I think we'll get to the midline stuff here in a second because I want to go back to that too. But when you say where's the four, I guess why was that so important to figure out when deciding what coverage you're going to be in? Well, it's not just so much coverage, but it can allow you to understand what you can do. So like if the four is in the corner and the ball is going towards them, it's, it's most likely going to be a pick and roll in some way, shape or form, or even if it's behind, because there's not very many fours that are getting run pin downs for or whatever. So now you can simplify it and actually have a belief of what expectation of what is going to happen. Then you can take into account. So now we're talking about if the four is in the corner. Okay. So if the four is in the corner, you know, you know, that that's your bump guy on a single side. So you got a bigger guy, a taller guy, potentially rim running, but also conversely, you have a guy who's probably not as quick or as agile closing out. Like if there was a corner skip pass, 
So it's just that whole little, you know, that decision tree of what someone can do, like a flowchart. And I use the word flowchart when I talk to all my NBA friends over here is because that's what a European basketball player is. If not this, then that, then this, then that. And it was just a complete like program. The basketball IQ was off the charts. Now, if the force lifted, now you have your shift guy, that foreman is bigger, occupies more space, cuts off more driving lanes, but again, closes out a little bit weaker. So it might be more susceptible to the 45 back cut and whatnot. So now you have to take that into account, but also he's a bigger player. So if there is a, you know, a pick and roll where you're asking that person to bump, it's a bigger player who might be able to stand the guy up more, which now you lose the moment for the, the subsequent getting it inside, whether it be trying to get a lob, trying to get a post seal, whatever it does to help things out. And then I think the other part about it is where the four is really dictates when and how you can triple switch. In European basketball, that is like the end-all be-all of you know short-circuit uh, team's offense is when you can triple switch and really just try to take things away. And so if the ball's coming towards the four, it's a lot harder to triple switch because now if you're trying to bring that four in to triple switch, like you're a direct vision of the ball handler. So it's a very easy pass to make. But now if he's behind, you know, you can do other things. You can have your on-ball guy get his hand up to try to discourage it for the moment of the pass, or hang time pass, or give the guy a longer time to close out. To me, it was just about after learning it and studying and, you know, listening to Ettery and the rest of the staff talk there, it's just these are some of the things that I boiled down in my head when I had to prepare a game. Like those are the things that I focused on. But I learned that from them because that's the only way I could really present like, hey, we should do this on this situation because of this is what we're going to be facing from these spacings. If we move away from more of the spacing and off the ball, but if we look at the two man combination in the pick and roll and their strengths, what was determining factors if we can be in aggressive coverage or we should be in a contained coverage? You know, for example, if it's a jet point guard with a good short rolling big, you know, I guess what were you guys looking at that would say like, we can be aggressive here or we need to be more contained? I think it boiled down to those individual characteristics. And the other thing we also tried not to do is we tried not to have a coverage for every single play. So what we would do is we might have it go into like with our base coverage and then we might have wildcard coverage for a single play. This play is a pet play for them. So let's throw something different at them where we can get a little bit. And, you know, it might work, it might not. Like we can get out of it. That was one thing we took into account, but also we would have a plan A, B, C, D, all the way through Z in case. But in terms of the two-man groups, like you knew which guys could not hedge and get back, which was going to cause a ton of rotations behind the ball and potentially give up three-pointers. One of our big things was really getting into the ball handler and picking up slack. And it was not something that I had really been exposed to over here because guys are so quick over here. And, you know, it's not as intense in the NBA. But, you know, I always thought like, I'm sorry if this is a little bit off topic, but like I always thought like if you're going to go under a bigger role, like you want to have space to go under and then, you know, you go under. And Adoree, you know, just really showed us like that's not the case. Like you pick up the sack, you get into them so that when the screen comes and you go under, you're still further away from the basket and things of that nature. So everything we did was predicated on getting into the ball. Some guys aren't uncomfortable with that. Pat, you know, you coach over there, you play over there. Some of these guys are grown ass men, you know, that are playing over there that are strong and know their deficiencies and they might know that. You know, like you said, I'm sorry, kind of go away from your question, like a really quick point guard. He might not be a quick point guard, but he might be strong, like Micic. If you were a more diminutive guard, you might not feel comfortable getting into him because he can influence you then. 
So I think the size and the physical ability of your guys, the lateral quickness, and how comfortable they do. Because at the end of the day, you can ask these guys to do whatever coverage you want, but if they don't feel comfortable in it, it's probably not going to work. And that's one thing we would do well. We would ask questions. We put them in initial coverage and we'd say, well, we're kind of, you know, throwing between these two. What do you guys think? Let's see it. Now, what do you feel? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones going to be held accountable for it. And sometimes we would get buy-in for them. And it's a lot easier when you get buy-in from them because now they might get more buy-in from themselves because they have some ownership in the decision. And Tom, I like what you said, like picking up the slack. I think what also Europe does well is they have the high pickup points. And how does that then affect the coverages that you may or may not be able to play if you have a guy who can really get up and pick up the guard or the ball early? It does a lot. It stops the momentum of a break or a secondary break. The quicker you can get into it, the most likely the higher up the floor they're going to have to start their offense, which now allows you to go under and basically it's a wasted motion. So that is imperative. Like if you can get a guy like that, that can be that focal point out front who can really harass the guy and get into him, you really can now decide. See now like one thing now you're talking about the high pickup point. So with the high pickup point, one thing we never wanted to do was to switch a first picker roll, like a transition picker roll. So the higher the pickup point, the less chance, if there is a screen set, that's going to be in a dangerous area where you feel like the guys are going to need to switch. Like we wanted to always save that switch for later in the clock when it would be more advantageous to us. This would be an example of containing it early in the clock by enabling us to go under, stopping the initial flow, and then saving that aggressive switch for later in the possession, you know, or later in the game or however one of the two things. You are 100% right. I used to think that the pickup point and the picking up slack were the same things. And then working for him and understanding all the details of it, no, no, it wasn't. It was, yeah, you can have a high pickup point, but you can stop the ball and then slack off your guy and then not get back up to him when the pick is coming. And that was something we drilled like crazy. We had a pickup slack drill. We had a pickup point drill. And, you know, it's something that if you're going to teach it, you have to hold them accountable for it too. The pickup slack drill. How do you guys teach that? What was the drill you would go to to emphasize it? I mean, this is one thing that, I mean, I have pages and pages of these two on two, three on three drills. The one thing that Edward was great at was looking at an action or, you know, five man action, taking out the thing. And now you got a two on two or a three on three that's going to just specifically drill something specific. And it was just simple, like a guy coming up the sideline. You know, and it's just a two-on-oh side picker roll and mid-picker roll drill. We would do it from everywhere. And then you would hear the guy yell screen and now you'd have to jump into his hip and then you would execute whatever coverage. You know, like obviously who's was going to hedge, you're going to force him into the screen or you would pick up the slack, you know, if you were pushing or downing to not allow him to get into the screen. It was so you're hitting a few things. You're drilling the fact that we want you on, you know, his hip or into his body some way to shape to then allow execution coverage. But now you're also working on communication as well. like. Basketball is not difficult. It can be difficult, but it also like the best teaching tools I've found are the most simplistic things because they're repetition. It's aimed at a certain goal and you just get the most runway out of them. I found so nothing elaborate. I wish I could tell you is put it this way. You know, you see all these drills on, you know, social media, Instagram, like nothing that we did would be any of those drills. <laughs> like it was all nuts and bolts stuff, foundational stuff, and it paid off. And Within these simple drills, though, did you constrain the offense at all just so you didn't breed frustration with the defense when it's two on two, three on three? And obviously there's two or three less defenders and potentially four to six less bodies. Yes and no. So everything we did, we wanted to drill the initial action and then we wanted it to be live and competitive for intensity. 
But if it's a two-on-two drill, you know, say it's a side pick and roll, we wouldn't let him go string the guy all the way out to the other wing. So we'd say, hey, listen, you guys got to play on one half of the courts or one quadrant of the courts or whatever it may be, or you throw a coach in there for like a kick ahead and then you're allowed to throw it back and it's just live one-on-one or two-on-two. So whatever it may be. So yes, that, but we always wanted it to be intense. First, we wanted to make sure the nuts and bolts were done and we would stop it if that wasn't executed well. And then we would get on to the actual play part of it. Tom, we've you know been talking a little bit and mostly I think when people think of pick and roll coverages, it's obviously the two on the ball that we spent a lot of time talking about. How about though the three behind the ball and either the IQ, the athleticism, the physical traits of those other three that are going to be involved in the pick and roll, how much that played into whether you're going to be more aggressive versus containing based off of what you knew you had behind a pick and roll versus what you had on the ball? I think that one was more so that it wouldn't necessarily be so much of the individual traits, but sometimes you can play into the advantageous or disadvantageousness of spacing, especially in Europe where the court's smaller. So anytime if you're going to put three behind the ball or three in front of the ball, you know, that you basically can play those three with two. So where in terms of your conversation, what I really think you can do is now you can be like, who do you trust to close out and to communicate and make decisions and maybe have them over there to really just muddy up the paint or whatever it may be. So maybe your IQ is the two guys that you would trust to figure out the two playing three. And maybe the other guy is the guy who can take more things away. And I'm not just saying this because it was something that I thought we were good at, but I think it was something that we struggled at. And we would talk about when you were going with an empty corner and you had three on one side. We spent a lot of time trying to decipher how to attack that and what was the best way. So to me, I think a lot of the stuff, when you look at defense is what don't you want to play with offensively? What constrains you offensively? And if you were going to be married to playing a certain way, but yet you realize that one coverage is absolutely just breaking you down, I think there should be a consideration of, can we do this ourselves too? If this is driving us crazy, what kind of you know stress can we put on the other team in terms of trying to figure this out and trying to decipher it? You know, going back to your other question, like just that three man, it allows you to do, and you've seen some of the stuff over there with the next thing and the way they close out and stuff like that. That's allowed based on the spacing. You know, if this was an NBA court that was spaced out a little bit more with more athleticism, you couldn't do some of that stuff. That took a long time for me to come to grips with. I just always find it interesting. So going back to the aggressive versus containing process of what you guys would decide or not decide to do, you know, you always heard like, you know, Belichick would say the term like make him play left-handed kind of a thing. When deciding on a coverage, how much of it was, okay, we want to take away what they do really well versus double down on, let's say what you guys have as a strength pick and roll wise, whether you have great athleticism. So we're just going to hedge or trap no matter what, or, you know, Certain teams, you know, just move the ball really well out of the pick and roll. So you're going to try to take that away. I mean, how much was it a balance of what you do versus what they do well, determining the coverage? I think start with what you do well, because also too, I think you can get into a spin cycle. If you keep changing, you know, when we're playing two to three games a week to attack that next game, you're losing the foundations of what you built. And then, you know, there's a taper off effect. So I think it's always best to try to stay with what you do and who you are first. and know that maybe it's a specific lineup, a specific play, their specific lineup, a time in the game, like through your preparation that you've seen where you can use a different coverage, or maybe because you also, you know, you're going to use it in the next couple of games too, is having that microcosm of that game. And you always want to win that game, but also know having a big picture in mind as well too. It is a big thing. But yeah, like with what you said about the whole Belichick thing, like 
you know, as much as I hate to admit it as a Bills fan, like I've studied the guy immensely. Like I've read every book and taken notes. And I mean, you want to make them play how you want them to play. And, you know, in doing some of that, you can do so by inviting a certain coverage, by maybe playing a way that they're not expecting. And you allow them to take the shots that you want instead of the ones that they want. So I think that's all part of it and understanding your opponent and what they're trying to accomplish, you know, and then in terms of like, you can have a special coverage where I think when we played Bologna, you know, we would blitz everything that Bellinelli did. Like that was not something we ever did, whether it be we blitz them on the, you know, pick a roll and the stuff we would do for them on the exits and catch and shoots, they were one-offs, you know? So a lot of this stuff is going to be specific to players too, because, you know, the best players in the world are playing in the NBA, the most talented, but there's a lot of really good, smart players in Europe. There's not a ton of elite shot creators in Europe because most of those guys are playing over here. So if you can do things to disrupt the people who are really good at creating their own shot and stuff like that, you, you know, handcuff what an offense can do. And, Tom, maybe if I can just follow up on the Bellinelli, because I think it's a good example everyone can visualize or see. Why did you guys choose to blitz everything he does? Was it because of his shooting or because you felt he maybe just wasn't a strong enough passer? Shooting and probably his more likely hit to shoot than pass. Like it was interesting. He was brought in as, this, you know, after the NBA career he had, and they brought him in over there, a lot of fanfare and everything like that. So we knew that we knew a lot. It wasn't like he was coming in to be a facilitator and things of that nature. So it's just kind of like one of those things where, we can expect that we're going to face him and they're going to run this stuff for him. And here's something we can do. There's a lot of different, I guess, somewhat complicated things we're talking about with backside rotations and different coverages and considerations of what they do offensively, all that stuff. But in practice, you mentioned it could be somewhat simple at a certain point. I mean, what would, a, I guess, a typical practice when you're trying to work on these coverages when you're in Milan? I mean, without giving away too much of how the sauce is made, what would it look like? Was it simpler than people might think? Or was it, you know, did you guys do something maybe specific to really put them through the ringer on understanding these coverages? Essentially very simple. And I say it's simple in terms of the presentation. It's not necessarily simple in terms of the execution or how it's talked or anything like that. I mean, I think one of the biggest things, just to roll it back, like one of the biggest things I've just been enamored with in coaching myself, who started coaching high school JV girls basketball is how some of the drills that you use at those levels are still used with professionals. And things of that nature. So I think like simpler is better. So for us, like in terms of coverages, we would do, we had a pick and roll shell drill where we would basically manipulate two to three pick and rolls out of a, and then we would go live or we would make sure like it would be a coverage. And then after a certain amount of passes or whatever, we would then go live. I guess the best way to put it is we would do drills where we would force that coverage to happen or like a controlled environment. And then we would also be Telling the second unit or another unit during a dead ball, hey, go ahead and blitz this or, you know, or hedge this or switch this. And just so that even if you're working on one thing, you can be working on another thing at the same time, you know, in terms of what we might face. So very simplistic in terms of like, I guess it would come down to breakdown drill first. We would drill it, walk through it and play it. And then we would bring it into five man and then we would play up and down. And also too, we, you know, video is very powerful. It's a teaching tool. We had the benefit of having, you know, the cameras in the arena where if we wanted to go back and call out anything the next day, we could do that and or take a look at it ourselves too. The best thing about preparation over there, I mentioned this to you guys before, it's like a football prep. Like you spend a couple of days like really honing in on an opponent and trying to figure it out. So there were some days where 
you know, on a Tuesday, we're playing on a Thursday, Tuesday, we initially start doing it. And after we've seen it and watched it again, the next day as a staff, we might switch it to a different thing because we didn't like the way it looked or didn't like the way it felt. So just having that flexibility too, I think is important, you know, to not be stubborn. Like this is what we're going to do, but like we're trying to win a game too. Tom, my last question for you has to do with playing in the short role. I think Europe does a really good job of it. So again, when we look at whether you want to contain or be aggressive, what factors when you look at the ability of the roller to play in the short role are you considering? And also maybe the, how the team space around the short role, whether they put two behind the ball or they flatten out the defense. What were you guys looking at in terms of, again, we can be aggressive or we need to be more contained? You know, I think it goes down to like what we talked about in terms of the abilities of all the players involved. Some guys who are really good short rollers. You know, we had Kyle Hines who, you know, could really pick apart the defense and was unselfish and could attack. And so we knew that if in practice we went through something and, you know, Kyle was able to exploit it, you know, we were going to see probably the worst case scenario because of his abilities and everything he's seen at that level. And then, you know, we also, when we would play against teams, you know, first, second time through, we would understand who gained a better understanding of what they could do and how they operated because certain coverages lead more to more short roles. But again, now once you take into account of the person in the short role, you know, is he a great passer? Is he unselfish? Can he attack off the dribble? And is he a shooter? You know, those things, when you look at those, most guys aren't going to check all those boxes. So now if he's not a great passer, can we help in a little bit more? Because we don't think that he's going to pass well to the wing and advance the ball. But also looking into the people he's playing with. Are his shooters elite? Can we help off them or do we have to be more hugged up? So again, it's like a dynamic where everyone's kind of, you know, tied together one way or the other. And once you evaluate the skill sets of all those people, then you can really decide how aggressive you can be or how more contained you want to be. And you might just be better off letting the big try to make some plays from the short roll than giving up threes or back cuts or whatnot. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Tom, thanks so much for all your thoughts on that. That was great. We want to move on to a segment now that we call start, sub, or sit. And so we'll give you three topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we'll discuss from there. Tom, if you're ready, we will dive into this first one for you. Let's go. So this first question has to do with mending a potentially fractured or broken, not broken, but relationship that needs some mending with a player. And maybe start service sit the best ways to go about doing that once a, a relationship has gone through some rough waters. So things to consider, start sub or sit, the time in which you approach this player to try to mend it, the medium that you use. So how you decide to actually try to maybe mend this relationship. Uh, and the third one is just who it is their personality, I guess your former relationship, who it is determining how you go about mending. This is a good one. And I like this one because by and large, 
I consider myself a relationship person first and foremost, and it's something I spend a lot of time on. And I think that as you gain relationships with people, then you can have more difficult conversations with them or more honest conversations, I should say. Do I have to put the cursory? It depends on like everyone else says. <laughs> we can stamp it with it. Yeah. If you want. <laughs> I think I would start. I think the most important to me is the medium and the medium is face to face. You know, I think if you've built that relationship and trust with someone that you can have honest conversations. And the hope is that your first conversation face to face with this person isn't the difficult conversation. Or, you know, I think if you have a good relationship with a person and actually show that you genuinely care about them and you know you can talk things through with them. And I think it all starts with that because as we know, like <laughs> building relationships is important because if you're having a problem with player X, generally the first person that's going to notice that there's a problem with player X is the guy who has a relationship. And secondly, the person who's going to be asked to talk to that person before it gets out of hand is the person who has the best relationship with them. So if you can have a great relationship with people and just be open and honest with everyone, I think that helps. And obviously the medium to me, you earn those relationships face to face, you know, whether it be in practice, after practice, at meals, whatever it may be, like the medium. And then if you need to mend that relationship, you can talk things out. That gives that it's an open forum. It's, you can read body language. You can see if the guy, because a lot of, you know, text or whatever it may be, you don't know what the guy's actually thinking. But if you're face-to-face with someone, you can actually genuinely understand you know, what the emotions of the conversation are or the topic. So to me, the medium being the number one, and I guess one A of that would be face-to-face. Then the second one would be the time you approach. Sometimes cooler has to have to prevail. I think it's best not to adversarial relationships with your players and things of that nature and just know that you know there's a buy-in. But even if you have a great relationship with someone, you might know that at times they're not ready to hear you and maybe you're not ready to talk to them. So I think, you know, taking account and it could, I mean, when I say that, like practice could be over and it could be, you see him while he's icing down or whatever, or if he's shooting afterwards, you, you just stick around with the intent to talk to him and you can formulate your thoughts and then you can figure out the best way to go to it. Or it might have to be the next day or whatever it may be. So I think the time would be the sub and the sit who it is, because at the end of the day, like if you're going to be open and honest with people, but I'm honest with everyone. I think in terms of many relationships, I think the only consideration would be who it is. You just know this guy can't accept criticism or the truth. And at that point, it's probably a problem that he's on your team anyways. So for who it is, like I think we would all like to treat everyone the same way. And you know, not everyone's going to get treated the same way in terms of their opportunities you know, on the court, like in terms of their shots and all that kind of stuff. But I think if as a man, you can treat everyone the same, I think that's all that everyone asks for one through 12 on a roster and like just from a person and a relationship or a person to person. So that would be the last one because my hope is I'm treating everyone the same anyway. So that doesn't matter. Really great answer there all the way through. So I'd actually like to ask you to start here about your sub, which was the time. And I thought you said something just really insightful about sometimes players or the coach needs just a little bit of time to let cooler heads prevail and to kind of see things maybe more clearly. And I kind of wonder about with that situation, then how the medium, I guess, kind of combining two together. Once you've had some time, then what kind of medium does sometimes a text work to kind of break the ice or a call? Or, you know, is everything going to be face to face after you've given things some time? I know everything depends, but general thoughts there. By and large, like, say you just suddenly give it time, but then you go home and maybe your cooler had to prevail, then you've thoughts on the drive home. 
you know, maybe I could handle this differently, or maybe he needed to know this, and maybe he's down on himself about that. So maybe a text message that night, like, hey, let's chat in the morning, stop by. You know, you did X, Y, and Z pretty good. We need to work on this, but we can talk through it. You know, and again, once you have that buy-in, and I think if a player knows you're invested in them, they're willing to be a little bit more forthcoming. Yeah. And again, I don't believe relationships should be transactional, whereas you're going to get this out of me, so I'm going to get this out of you. Like, to me, relationships are relationships. So in terms of the timing of it all, like, maybe that's best. Maybe that player needs it. There could be other things going on in their life and stuff like that, where now, you know, that person just trying to get out of practice to go home and deal with a family or a personal thing. and. So again, it depends, but also it's just, you're having that little sliding scale of just reading people and understanding your people. And if you're around these guys enough, especially in Europe, because in Europe, you spend so much time together and it's much more of a close knit fabric of a team than in, in the NBA, in my mind, you can understand, but also you can go to other players too. Hey, something's going on. Hey, Pat, something's going on with Dan. Everything good? You know, whatever it may be, like he might need a pickup. And sometimes it comes, that's the best way to do it too. Like, hey, just... You know, having that, and but again, it goes to having that trust in the group and their unit and the maturity of the unit. And you know, it's not to be said that that can happen with a young team or whatnot. So again, it's just understanding who you're dealing with and who you're talking with. And it goes back to just gaining that relationship and understanding the players so that you can then make that decision. And Tom, do you feel this conversation should happen before, say, the next practice? You know, is there maybe like a time limit on it? You know, ideally, like it's always happened you know, sooner than later so that you can just move on from it. And again, you don't want it to carry into next practice because then there could be animosity on either side and then it could lead to, you know, things escalating. So to me, I always nip things in the butt as soon as possible and address them. Like, even if it's difficult, that's part of the job. You know, that's part of life. So the other thing I wouldn't want to do is I wouldn't want it to linger over an off day, especially like that's, you know, their time away and zone out and stuff like that. Just address it and then time heals all wounds. So like, then they can just start getting past it and or give some time to reflect on what you said. They might come and say, hey, listen, you were right. Understand my bad. Or they might present something with you that you didn't even understand that was going on or thought process. So, And you could then be, be at fault. So just being open-minded about it. But the sooner you can talk about it, the sooner you can find resolution. All right, Tom, moving along, we'll head back to the court. This one has to do with playing with pace. You mentioned that the highest PPP piece tend to be when offenses are executing earlier in the shot clock. So we're going to give you three things that you think are probably the most advantageous or helpful in generating a high quality look early in the possession. Is it what we're calling player depth? So filling the corners, getting a rim runner. Is it the ball depth? So advanced passes, getting the ball to the corner or dribbling it down below the free throw line? Or is it Getting ball reversals, getting to the second side, shifting the defense, and maybe trying to get closeouts that way. I'm going to start player depth with the caveat of I'm going to exclude the rim run as part of that. The corner depth is the most important to me, like because now you're flattening the defense, and I mean deep corner depth. Like let's get all the way down, so now you really have to guard. You really have deep kickaheads for corner threes that are in play. You have baseline drives, which now I think one of the best things you can do in transition is to you know, hit baseline drive all the way through. Now that guard is on the baseline and everything is coming towards him and he can almost like see what's developing and what paths there lanes there are. So definitely going to start that one. I'm going to go with ball depth as the second one because I think the sooner you can get it, you know, further down the court, 
the more likely you're going to get a decent shot from it. It's going to create, you know, whether it's breaking the three point line or the free throw line, whichever that may be. But like, again, that puts immense pressure on the defense with the goal of getting it to the paint. One of the things we charted over there was high paint, low paint, no paint touches, like whether the ball hit any of those. And when the ball hit the low paint and we can sit there and say like, yeah, of course, because it's closer to the basket, but it has to get there in order for it to be close to the basket. So the high paints, and if you get no paint, now, again, that's not to say like, if you have a wide open three, you don't take it, you know, in transition or, or whatever, but like, if you can attack, it just opens everything up. And then I'm going to sit the ball reversal because I think if you execute initially, well, you might not need the ball reversal, but the ball reversal can be advantageous in terms of like, there could be cross matches where now you can take advantage of that. But in terms of trying to get off playing quicker and getting an early shot, which it's, I think that's would be secondary. Now your defense has time to generally, the ball has time to be reversed. You probably lost that advantage anyways. Now you're probably playing more out of your secondary offense or, or half court offense. A lot of great stuff there. I'd like to just start with your preference that you don't need a rim runner. I guess outside of obviously, like we said, a direct finish, why is that of little importance or not so important to you compared to the corners? Well, to me, I think it's just he's occupying the paint. And generally, his man probably is too. And if you're wanting to attack the rim, you can't do that. So hey, you can also say, hey, listen, if your first three steps are good and you get a deep seal and you can get the guy, he's maybe he's fronting you and now you go to the corner and now you got the, you know, the home run in. I'm not saying it's excluded, but you can't camp out that way because then that box everything down. So if you don't have it, now empty out to the weak side, weak side dunker so that we can continue to attack. So that's just more so like, you don't want your guy to be the defender under the rim as well. That's impeding your guy from thinking he can put your ball handler from thinking he can attack or a guy from thinking he can cut. So it's just a matter of space and just opening that thing up. So it's a clear lane to the basket. So Tom, I think for a distinction within this conversation too is, and maybe you can distinct for us, but the points per possession of higher pace teams, when we're talking about this right now, getting the ball up the floor quickly, it's not so much, or maybe it is, that they're shooting it within, say, the first eight to 10 seconds, but that they're just creating a quick advantage. They're getting everybody into these operating areas quickly. And then that possession becomes higher PPP, or is it that the shot is taken within, say, that first eight to 10 seconds? No, it's a shot clock. I did it, you know, luckily work in the NBA for a while. You develop some friends and all. And, you know, I have one of my good friends is probably one of the best analytics guys going, Sammy Ofan. And, you know, I'd have to, I would talk extensively with him about all this stuff and, you know, shot clock breakdowns, you know, you know, breaking into four and all that kind of stuff. And you know, there's really not a metric for whether it be college, pro, G League, you know, overseas, wherever, in terms of where you score as well. You know, the last six seconds of the shot clock is you win the first six or, or second six or whatever. So it's more about coming in and, you know, being willing to allow those shots to happen. Because you mentioned a great word, advantageous. You know, like what's offense, like good offense creates an advantage. And I think the easiest way to create that advantage is when the defense is transitioning. I was at, this is a little bit different, but like someone asked me, what's the most important thing for team defense? And I said, transition. And the person looked at me like quizzical and I'm like, well, if you don't stop anyone, then you never have to worry about playing half court defense. And so I think if you kind of look at it from, from that lens, and again, that might not be for everyone, you know, PPP is not for everyone. You know, you look at some people, some people, since it's not what was on a traditional statute for 34 years, some people dismiss it, but yet they swear by three-point percentage or field goal percentage. You know, so it's all, you know, what lens, you know, are you looking through? To me, it's more like looking at, 
everything that's given to you. Because some of the people who would dismiss this line of thinking or, you know, PPP, like are also the same people who can't evaluate a game without a box score, but swear off analytics, you know, or just analyzing games through a different lens. But to me, like a box score is the most archaic form of analytics there is. I think it's just using what's at your thing. But going back to what you were saying, and part of that is just being willing to understand that like, you might get that best shot from 12 to 18 on the clock because of the advantageousness of, you know, attacking transition guys matching up or failing to match up and just communication errors. Yeah. Anytime you can play off communication errors, it's phenomenal because I can sit there and say, Hey, you do this and you do that, but now you have to execute it. You have to communicate and you have to put the defense in a position to make a mistake. If you don't put them in that position to make a mistake, then your offense probably isn't going to be successful in one way, shape or form. You said something kind of interesting. And it's something that Pat and I find ourselves in conversations in from time to time is just, I don't want to say modern way to look at box scores of the game, but you just mentioned that, you know, box scores aren't always, you know, the best way to obviously kind of get the health of a game or how it actually is going versus some analytics. How do you or, you know, people that you've coached with, what are ways that they look at the game, say through analytics? Like, are there specific angles that they take or are there specific analytics that they look at that you think kind of gives a better metric? of how they're playing or how they might play. In terms of people I've worked with, I think the first person that exposed me to this was D'Antoni. You know, when he came here and obviously he had caught flack or whatever, like, you know, the teams in Phoenix gave up a lot of points. Yeah, but by possession base, they instead of it being points per game, points per possession, it's more accurate read when you're playing faster. So that really changed the kind of like the prism that I was looking at things. And it's a piece of the puzzle, piece of the pie. To me, like, how you're looking at things, whether it be your feel, your video, whatever. Like, I think it's, I use two examples. Of One is my car. So my car has a side view mirror, a rear view mirror, a backup camera, and I have my own two eyes. I never rely on just one of those. It's usually a conglomerate of all of them. And then I figure out, you know, and make the best decision based on all that information. And then you mentioned the box score thing. The best summary I've ever heard of someone talking about a box score versus video is was the baseball coach and this was like 20 years ago he was like yeah listen you can, i can look at a box score and see a guy went 0 for 4 and see another guy went 3 for 4 but what i'm more concerned with is the guy who went 0 for 4 who hit three to the warning track and one liner to the gap and the center fielder made an unbelievable dive catch versus the guy who had three blue hits or an infield single and like you can't get that context from just looking at one thing so anything that can help bring context to numbers or context to videos like i think in even preparation, I never relied on it. Like what I would do is I always try to form my opinion by watching. And then I would go back and see if I found a hole, if the numbers either enforce my opinion or punch the hole in whatever my opinion was. And then I would dive further if need be. So I think it's just a part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the younger coaches are probably more open-minded to it just because they've grown up with it versus, you know, some of the guys who've been around for a while where it didn't exist. You know, most people are habitual. My last question, it's kind of, I guess, a conglomerate of kind of everything we talked about so far and what you had mentioned with the PPP and the value of a low paint touch. And then I'd like to harpen back just on a big rim running, maybe your preference where you would prefer to have driving lanes open versus trying to, hey, let's get a guy rim running and let's throw it to him in the post. And now we've got our paint touch. I'd rather have the driving lanes open. Yeah, I think the hardest thing you can do is just look at a guy and say he's six foot eleven, six foot ten, and he should be on the block and he can score. It's not realistic, like to ask people to make skilled shots. Now, I think that the better post up 
players in Europe than in the NBA, just because they get more opportunities with it, like in terms of back to the basket, because it's more prevalent. But even with that being said, doesn't mean that, that that's the correct way. And again, I'm not saying I don't, well, my belief is, but I think if anytime you can penetrate the defense, like off the, you know, and you, you have an, a guard who can create for others and unselfish, like you have those drop-off passes, you have the layups, you have the driving kicks, it puts the defense in a state of constant motion. When you're doing that, that's when the, the breakdowns happen. And it's just the more pressure and more stress you can put on the defense and put, you know, you can put heat on the rim. I steal that from my time in Australia with the academy. They used to say that, is put heat on the rim. When you do that, like it's just that's where all the stress is. That's the number one stress. Tom, you're off the start, suburb, sit, hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed your answers there. So, Tom, we got one more question for you before we close. Thank you very much for your time and your thoughts today. This was awesome. And I appreciate it, guys. This is great what you guys are doing for the coach community. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate that. Our last question for you that we ask all the guests is what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? This is the one that you could prepare for, obviously, because it's the one that you guys ask everyone. But to me, I think it just with everything in life, it's your investment in people, you know, your investment in relationships. And because at the end of the day, you know, I've gotten where I've gotten because relationships, I would say a lot of times, you know, I was not the most qualified person, but I might have ended up with the job because, you know, I had a better relationship with someone or vice versa. But also too, like you build relationships with people and you actually know people on another level you like you learn more about them their their backgrounds and their history but also from a basketball and personal level like this game has brought me to i think five continents you know it's because relationships and the people i've gotten to learn from and learn from, you know whether it be you know, great players like you know kobe and nash and power whoever it may be or great coaches in terms of you know, edery or d'antoni or quinn or whoever it may be those were just relationships where we could have honest conversations. And I was always from, you know, there's a basketball podcast. So like I always to ask them basketball questions as results, you know, of experiences. Like I've never been a player, so I can't see the game through their lens, but to always be able to ask people like what they're seeing and what they're doing from that respect and, and just leaning on people and being open to learning from others as well is a big part of it. And again, I think the relationships, you know, the relationships are what drive my life. So it would be remiss not to think that it has something to do with you know, the profession I've chosen as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Who do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.